0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Scratcom Talks. I'm your host, Jaffer Hussman. Today we will be talking about intelligence in diplomacy, how states are using their intelligence services to reinforce their foreign interests. And to discuss all this and more today, I'm joined by Jeffrey M. Nicholson. He is a former U.S. Army intelligence officer. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today on this podcast.
1: Thank you, thank to be. thanks to be here.
0: All right, Jeff, first uh, and foremost, tell us a bit about uh, yourself.
1: Well, I uh, just recently retired intelligence officer from the U.S. Army. Um, I uh, worked formerly in the NSA and also with uh, many multiple uh, combat tours and uh, did about 30 years of service. And so now I'm just enjoying retirement, but I get to talk to people like you.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Now let's jump right into the topic. Jeff, you know this is something that uh, many of us are uh, wondering. Perhaps this is something many of us have been wondering for years. How is intelligence used by states in the world of modern diplomacy?
1: Well, you know, we think about uh, intelligence used in diplomacy as as several fields. Um, you know, normally there's the analysis of closed communication to policymakers. So we in we access uh, messages being sent between policymakers and try to access that. Um, that can get us lots of information about anything from crops to economic positions, um, to to sudden troop movements or something like that. So it becomes an early warning indicator of what uh, policymakers might be doing or what's happening in their countries. We also can use it to publicly disclose things that we're finding out to hold aggressors accountable, such as troop movements and things like that, and um but also we use it behind the scenes to understand the intentions of diplomats during talks. So going into talk negotiations, forewarned about what, about what uh, diplomats are going to do, gives you a, a power position at, uh, on the table. Okay. And what kind of challenges uh, do intelligence
0: officers face uh, these days?
1: Well, right now you're seeing a lot of... Uh, well, think of it as the uh, intelligence is, an, is analysis. It's not necessarily forensic. And so a lot of things happen. Um, You put out analysis that, well, this could be happening, this could be happening. And we like to say it's always an operational success and an intelligence failure. And so a lot of times you see, you just say it's the intelligence is wrong. Um, Like, for example, Colin Powell uh, citing chemical weapons in Iraq. You know, the intelligence was there that, yes, there was a possibility that that, um, Saddam Hussein is still producing chemical weapons. Of course, after the war, it's like, oh, yep, intelligence failure. But so policymakers and diplomats will use it to make decisions. And then it becomes, well, bad intelligence. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's also public scrutiny. You know, the idea that we shouldn't be using intelligence. Like um, take uh, the public scrutiny against um, the Brits. The Brits were you know, using MI6 to target the G20 summit, and it was leaked to the Guardian. And uh, so there's backlash when uh, when you see basically intelligence gathering, even though it's being done pretty much by everybody.
0: Okay. now, uh, I think you have made a a good point there that uh, sometimes states act on possibility. Now, how common is that? Or do you think it's more common for a state to act on concrete facts rather than possibility of something happening?
1: when you have a robust intelligence, you, you don't just listen to one, one report. It's like, if you, you have a, uh, you, you pick up one report and you're like, okay, that's something to watch. But, but until you see it happening across different fields, um, and you, until you start seeing it happen across multiple disciplines and you are seeing multiple indicators, you don't want to lift it up to policymakers and say, Oh, this is what's definitely happening. And so generally, Developed intelligence communities can can take these multiple indicators and uh, and be pretty certain what's happening. so yeah, there is there is that where where developed intelligence communities are much better than some of the smaller countries who might be acting on on just what they can gather. But countries like uh, russia, england, israel, china, they they're pretty good at it at this point where they don't jump at little things.
0: Okay, but bad intelligence does happen, correct?
1: Bad intelligence, it's, it's an interesting way to say it, uh, but yes, they, they use, use the term bad intelligence or what also happens, misreading or not getting the effect you want. Like you can, you can take uh, chemical weapons in Iraq, right, as an example. Were there chemical weapons in Iraq? Yes, of course there were. I mean, Saddam Hussein used 40 known chemical strikes against Kurds. Were there chemical weapons found afterwards? Yes, but they were in such a state of disrepair that they weren't useful. So did he have that he never showed to the, you know, did he never fully disclosed like he was demanded to after the first Gulf War, he didn't. And there were still chemical weapons there, but they were in such bad repair. And so, you know, you show aerial footage in front of the UN that says, oh, look, there's a a possibility here of him developing chemical weapons, but you don't have forces on the ground to do it. So what happens is is policymakers might use intelligence for their own agendas. And then when, of course, when it comes out, the agenda wasn't very popular, they can turn around and use intelligence as a scapegoat. That seems to happen quite a lot.
0: Are you saying that uh, there are times when, when intelligence officers are blamed for someone else's crimes? I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs>
1: That's, uh, I would say it as, because um, what I talk about is agendas as opposed to crimes. So looking at foreign policy, right? Take foreign policy. We, we use uh, intelligence to, to shape our foreign policy because we have to know what is what is happening in foreign countries? Take Ukraine, for example. You, you have this, uh, Russia building up in the Ukraine. And so intelligence was leaked and basically saying, okay, the Ukraine is, is, is in jeopardy of being invaded. So that intelligence could be used as, well, oh, okay, well, we need to send a message to Russia that they can't do this. But what happens if a, if a war starts? What happens if, uh, if, let's say, the U.S. decides to send troops into Ukraine intelligence? be intelligent? and that war starts. Is the war started because of the intelligence or is it because of the actors who started massing troops? So yeah, it shapes agendas, but intelligence is nothing more than a tool. And so I, when you when you use words like crimes or war crimes, that's, a, that's pretty extreme language, but it does shape our agendas. So uh, Ukraine can use it as a tool to say, hey, we need help um, because we're seeing this happening. And that—that's really it. It's a tool. The nice thing about now, very different from from what used to happen, is you know, back in the days of of World War II, we had a uh, you know the black chamber pre World War II and things like that, where it was nothing more than just walking over to uh, the telegraph office and and demanding that the telegraph office hand us over the, the the communications over to ambassadors. But now, a lot of intelligence is available to everyone, uh, the press. Like for example, you as a journalist can look at satellite images imagery of those same troop buildups and the press can be used as well. So you notice what's happening is a lot of intelligence being leaked to the press where it's, Oh, we see something happening here and there's a leak and the press becomes a part of that instrument of, of diplomacy.
0: Okay. I think you have made some great <laughs> points there. Uh, so certainly, uh, if intelligence is the, is used as an effective tool, it can help in saving innocent lives
1: yeah take Rohingya, like if you look at the uh, the Rohingya villages that were burning in two thousand and seventeen you had two hundred villages burning that could be seen from space, and so it was commercial satellite imagery used by the press. Oh, look, there are two hundred villages burning right now in Rohingya, and there's human rights violations and genocide happening, and it was the that effectively open satellite imagery that that could be used for that. You have. Social media reports troops being loaded on trains and, and uh, through through Russia towards the Ukraine border. You have social media images of Russian uniform troops in the Belarus. So yeah, you 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 have this ability to to share information publicly, and that's often used if you think about it as a as a power tactic. So previously, if we if we like JFK and the missile crisis, you know JFK during the Cuban missile crisis showed publicly that there are missiles in Cuba. It, it was used as a way to to try to stop expansionism and try to stop aggressors. Now you have the public able to do things like that with cell phones and uh, access to satellite imagery.
0: All right, now let Jeff, let's move forward with the discussion. Now you have mentioned journalist, and uh, these days with the emergence of a smartphones, I believe uh, everyone is a journalist. You know because everyone has the uh, capability to go out there, record a video, or Shoot uh, a film. So, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, people using uh, their cell phones for intelligence gathering or perhaps journalism?
1: Well, of course, it can be dangerous, but it is a shift of power. And and what you're seeing is this massive shift of power. Uh, Let's take the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was people coordinated for the first time, seeing these dictators and authoritarian governments throughout the Middle East and the people being able to organize and then. Send pictures of the the oversteps of of the government police. So this is happening everywhere. Whenever you start to see authoritarian governments stepping up and overstepping and 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 crushing their uh, uh, crushing protests, um, you're seeing pictures of it. Is it dangerous? Yes. I mean, at this point,
0: I would like you to expand yeah. on this uh, dangerous part. <laughs> what kind of dangers do you think are involved for those who are using their cell cell phones for uh, intelligence gathering?
1: Well, take arrests. I mean, you have arrests in China. You have arrests in the Belarus. You have arrests in Moscow. You have even take uh, the U.S. Capitol where there were protests that stormed the U.S. Capitol building. And it was it was video footage captured by, sometimes, even the protesters that were used in those arrests. And so, there's, those arrests um, become a, a, uh, you know, one of the biggest dangers. In, in countries like the U.S., you have a due process that has to happen and a public court system. In other countries, you don't have a public court system. You have the ability to, to arrest people and have them just disappear. And so, one of the dangers of people just randomly posting videos is they can be attracted by intelligence communities or security forces in authoritarian governments. And that is, uh, you know, again, encroaching upon human rights.
0: Okay. Now, uh, Jeff, uh, my last question to you. Where do you see the future of the world of uh, intelligence? Uh, because, see, with the emergence of technology uh, and smartphones, like we, uh, uh, like, like we discussed, uh, everyone has uh, the capacity and capability to uh, do journalism and engage in uh, intelligence gathering. So. Do you think uh, that uh, uh, technology has replaced uh, conventional uh, intelligence gathering? Do we even need intelligence, intelligence officers these days when we have uh, technology which can do their work remotely?
1: I definitely see a, a field for human intelligence and, and uh, you need to have human interaction, especially because um, in take authoritarian areas where they may have complete access to the communication systems, human interaction becomes much more important. On another, another answer to your question, what do I see as the future for intelligence like this? There's been a shift. Originally, intelligence gathering was around diplomatic uh, communications. And then around Cold War, it shifted to be like early warning, um, especially during, uh, you know, when, when terrorist attacks uh, were, became common. The, the Cold War focus and the, the war on terrorism focus was always early warning of attacks. Now you're seeing a shift in intelligence away from just diplomacy and just military or terrorist related criminal activity. Um, you're also seeing a shift towards academics and corporate espionage, where, like, take China. When you can influence trade negotiations, that is a, a massive power play for a country economically. But if you could take academic information, intellectual property, and you can bring it into your country, that is also a massive economic power play. And what you're seeing is China, instead of focusing more on diploma- diplomacy and uh, And military, they're focusing a lot on academic espionage.
0: All right. uh, Jeffrey and Nicholson, thank you very much uh, for taking out the time uh, for this uh, podcast. I really appreciate your analysis. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And uh, thanks uh, to our audience for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now.